Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The most supreme adaptations are purchased at the cost of inessentials. Our hosts already carry structures for sight, sound, smell, locomotion. It'd be quite redundant to carry those capacities ourselves. So we travel light. No quaint fins, stalks, feathers. It's terminating in hooks, or suckers, or little digits. We've no use for any of it, for we have transcended. <laughs> Have I amused you, Doctor? You are truly self-deluded. You're stalling for time. It's already too late. You really don't see it, do you? See what? You're jealous. Absurd. You have no senses of your own. You have to steal them from others. We have inhabited men for millennia. We have caused great nations to fall. We've shaped You've it. stolen everything you ever had. You are nothing but a thief and murderer, a parasite. You're pathetic. You're nothing but cancer with a big mouth. I will know every thought in your head in just a few moments. All your memories, your senses, your fear, your suffering. A bit creepy, to say the least, but an applicable representation of the Archons, those parasitic entities that contribute little to creation, except feeding on us while enthralling us. They are indeed cancers with big mouths, kilopoth algorithms seeking only to overcome and assimilate everything into their faulty coding. We'll be discussing a lot about Archons and their simulations in this eternal now. Gonna be intense. The clip is from Guillermo del Toro's underwhelming Cabinet of Curiosities series. An extraterrestrial body snatcher episode entitled The Autopsy. It's the only real Gnostic fair in the series, although the viewing directed by Panos Cosmasto, was pretty darn good. And shout out to the F. Murray Abraham character, who outwits the Archon in the autopsy by playing tricks while mocking its hubris. That's part of how we win in this age of Hermes. Beyond going inward, we act the trickster and go down laughing with gallows humor. I haven't had this much fun since I was at a nudist colony and accidentally backed into a meat thermometer. What do you expect in a universe where death and taxes are the only certainties? I mean, really? Death and taxes? You know the game is rigged, and you know we gotta get in to get out, as Peter Gabriel sang. 
And we gotta be the Joker and the Thief. I didn't build this system. Nor did I fuck it up. You arrive here at A.M. Bite because you know Gnosticism provides the sickest sense of humor. That edgy, wild laughter that keeps you one step ahead of Wetiko and its mind-destroying sickness. There's a void inside of me. You. Everyone. An endless abyss. And everything you collect, every success, everything you take to shrink that void down, none of it works. It's like a... Like a black hole. Everyone has a black hole inside of them. What I want is for mine to stop eating everything up all the time. There is that celebrated parable where God is an elephant and many blind men feel various parts of the animal and claim that it is the entirety of God. Guess what? Among the blind men, the Gnostic is the one who always grabs the elephant by the balls. That's how it is and always has been. We're running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. We're playing tricks and being the Joker and the thief in this fallen universe. Always with Hermes, rejected wisdom, a troubadour Cathar or two, and that god in the gutter of Philip K. Dick. As Carl Jung said, Modern man can't see God because he doesn't look low enough. You think I am a devil, but only because I have lived in hell. And the Gnostic will still grab him by the balls, I suppose. And even better, Jung also said, The experience of the self is always a defeat for the ego. If I'm not me, who the hell am I? Let's experience our true selves. Let's disinfect our minds of those mind parasites cancers with big mouths and let's lift the veil of the simulation there's an old zen koan goes like this everyone has two lives and the second life begins the moment you realize that all along you only had one by odin's dingleberries and hera's vibrator it would be arguably hard to think of anyone better for this aeonic task than our astral guest that is Howard Mikowski, who materializes at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. Howard taps directly into the ethos of Aeombite and summons the very spirit of Simon Magus and Philip K. Dick. Listen closely to this interview and check out his book, as it might be one of your best shots at breaking out of the coils of the Ouroboros once and for all. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being into this. I don't believe it. It's not possible. I didn't say it would be easy, Neo. I just said it would be the truth. Stop! One of the coolest elephant testicle grabbing interviews this year, and that's saying a lot. Like I keep saying, 
This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. And in a state of wakefulness, that true self-awareness, you always win. Like Stephen Davis wrote in his book on the secret book of John, self-knowledge is the key to the Gnostic religious quest, but not self-knowledge as an egocentric, personal, or individual matter. Rather, self-knowledge as the realization of our origin in God and our destiny to return there again. Egocentricity is a result of the arrogant attempt to know God as an object. Ego is the name for the continuing error that presents to the mind an external world. Projected outward, ego is demiurge, a false divine self, a false god. Well, God's got him now. <laughs> I guess God silence tongue type that loves to see us squirm with free will and other delusions. Insofar as there is an external world, there is an external God. Indeed, a vast series of gods, angels, demons, and archons. The panorama of unpleasant deity demons found in Gnosticism is not reflective of their own doctrine. Rather, it is the observation and analysis by the Gnostics of the religion of the Jews, Christians, and pagans with whom they lived. Gnostics decided the God of the Hebrew Bible was no God at all, but merely the incompetent creator of a world that never should have been created. Gnostics believe that ignorant people worship the ignorant being who commanded Adam never to eat from the tree of knowledge. The jealous God who falsely brags that he alone is God and there is no other God besides him. With spiritual insight, this God and the external world he is supposed to have created vanish. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. As I've said before, Sophia represents the great trickster archetype. And so does Jesus. Here are a couple of examples. In the Nag Hammadi Library's Second Treatise of Seth, the Demiurge wishes to destroy the arrived Aeon Jesus. Yaldabaoth tasks this assassination to the Archon of Hades. However, both Yaldibaldi and the Archon of Hades are a bit confused by who exactly Jesus is, because he's such an alien being. But they know he can't come around here no more. So the Archon of Hades manufactures the resurrection and executes Jesus. The problem is that he breaks a crucial cosmic law stating that those who are truly pure of heart cannot be condemned unjustly. Thus, what happens is that all the pain and torture imposed on Jesus gets reflected to the Demiurge and all his Archons destroying their power completely. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. You said it, man. 
Nobody fucks with the Jesus. In the Nag Hammadi Library's The Great Discourse, the Archon of Hades brings Jesus before his throne in the underworld. But that gives Jesus a chance to analyze the structure of the cosmos. Jesus doesn't wait to be mocked and tortured by the Archon of Hades. He shoots out of Hades like Henry Cavill in Man of Steel, leaving the Fortress of Solitude. Before going back to the Pleroma, Jesus takes the souls trapped in Hades and cracks the foundation of the Zodiac. So the mechanical forces of fate are no longer supreme over humanity. And he leaves an astral map of how to get back to the Pleroma in the hearts of every human that lives or will live, if they wish to access it. In the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, He who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow. We are all manifestations of Buddha consciousness, only don't know it. Nice lessons, eh? We trick, we inform, we help others escape Plato's cave. The Gnostics were very clear that we must be Christ while in the flesh. This means being a playa in a world full of mind parasites. As Aurora sang in, Cure for me, the glorious teachers are no use for creatures who know how to play with the gods. Let us to our interview with Howard. Write your own gospel, live your own myth, even if you're trapped in the 13th floor. I know the truth. Where are you? You could call it the end of the world. How many simulated worlds like this are there? Thousands. But yours is the only one that ever created a simulation within the simulation. Something that we never could have expected. I stabbed him. It was your user. He downloaded into you, manipulated you. A puppet. A puppet doesn't have a soul. I can't have a soul any more than Fuller. But you do. Fuller did. That's what I never expected. We programmed this world so that no one in it could ever learn the truth, and you and Fuller did. Don't you see what that means? Yeah. There's just one little flaw in your thesis. None of this is real. You pull the plug. I disappear. And nothing I ever say, nothing I ever do, will ever matter. Why don't you find my user? I'm sure he's a much better catch. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Howard McCoskey to discuss his book, Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap, a book I thoroughly enjoyed and really uh, taps into the ethos of this show and the ethos of what modern esotericism is 
should be. Howard, thank you very much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Like I say, I think we're going to have so much to dig into here together. Oh, there is so much. I've got, uh, yeah, your book really, really goes on an amazing odyssey and makes the the reader think and you bring so much to the table. But obviously, no book is written in a vacuum as much as we'd like to uh, grab it from Plato's ideal world and just put it somewhere. Uh, so the question would be, Howard, uh, tell us how you came to write this book. And I know in the book, you talk about having visions that sort of supported where you would end up, I think, 2009, right? A, a vision of a simulation and using the word reset. Yeah, this was, uh, it, it's been a long, for me, it's been a long journey. You know, it started 25 years ago when I was coming out of a, a pretty bad depression and wound up uh, at the point of wanting to kill myself, actually. And and a, a television program came on for uh, Nova a Nova Pyramid Building program, and it instantly it it changed my life instantaneously. It's like I knew that's that's what I was supposed to do, and I spent ten years of my life studying ancient Egypt and what you might call Hermeticism and and um, Gnosticism, alchemy. Was lucky enough to meet some Native Indian medicine men, uh, uh, um, a, a monk from Korea, several people, and I, I thought I was doing really well. I thought I was quite knowledgeable at about 2004, 2005. And uh, then I had a death experience. I fell in a canyon. And that uh, that threw everything on its head because it it revealed the not just the non-existence of reality, but the non-existence of me. And then from the, lat, the 15 years after that has become an on and off time of extreme clarity and extreme challenge. Uh, I did write a couple of books in around 2018, 2019, but along the way, there's been all of these pieces of breaking down reality, breaking down the matrix, looking into things that you would know as archons. And and it was only though in the last two or three years that it's kind of like all of that finally came together and kind of said, okay, actually, this is the book I'm really supposed to write. All the other stuff up to this point was warm-ups or even distraction. This is This is the core material here, and it's it's stuff that sounds so negative on the surface, but really, if you allow yourself, I think, to go into the material, it leads to tremendous power because it's the power of ourself, but our walls are so strong, it's difficult to break them down. And I think that's why it can be difficult for people to hear the material. Oh, I would agree. And yes, 2009, yeah, that was a rough year for me too. And like you, you can, uh, I'm the same. Uh, you can spend years reading these amazing texts and the visions of these seers and all that. But at some point, you really have to experience it. And that's really the red pill that crystallizes your mind. Uh, for you, it was a near-death experience. For me, it was uh, ayahuasca visions and some tragedies where I pivoted to the right place and came to a a, a state of Satori. So, yeah, so... You would agree that, yeah, you have to find a way to experience even what you're reading in your book. There's, yeah, nothing happens. Anything that comes from a book or a video or out, anything outside yourself is just information. It's just possibility. Um, if someone picks up my book, that's all it is. It's just possibility. It's meant to be looked at, examined, questioned, and then put into your own experience. And if you don't have enough experience in these subjects, the question becomes, well, how do I find that experience? What can I do to 
be in creating the kind of experiences I need to get the answers that are required because we're, we're looking for truth and we don't know what truth is or we would already have it. So we, it's a quite a journey. The good news for people listening to this right now, and I guess this will come out in sometime in November, right, is that as our world spirals into continued insanity, what's also happening is doorways are are there. Doorways are opening to deeper knowledge if you're willing to if you're willing to look. And I think bizarrely, as difficult as this time is, it's also the greatest opportunity to look within because so much is being revealed as as um, untrue outside of ourselves. There becomes only one place to start looking. So I think a lot of people are making a lot of progress. The question becomes: Do do do, do somebody really want the progress or not? I was pushed into it, like I say, from real difficulty and tragedy 25, 30 years ago. And it kind of has just stayed with me my whole life. And I never sort of stopped. Um, maybe others are just getting that taste now. But yeah, we can go into some of these ideas, which are what, what I call um, fundamental mistakes or fundamental <laughs> errors of, of consciousness that trap us in this reality. Absolutely agree. Uh, even in your book, you say in one part, uh, so what? What What's the value of this information? And you urge the reader to look deeper and you offer solutions, exercises, which we can get into, and you bring all these different traditions. So the your book is certainly approachable and practical for those, like you said, wanting to get to the next level, to this endless journey of awakening. I love how you start the book with this quote from... Um, the secret book of John that goes, and I entered into the midst of their prison, which is the prison of the body. And I said, he who hears, let him get up from his deep sleep. So that's that's a central theme, you would say, the, the goddess descending and awakening those who are asleep and dead in the material world. Yeah, this is one of the things I think that was real. I was really looking forward to this interview was while there are certainly Gnostic, as you know, Gnostic and Cathar overtones in the book and suggestions to look into that, it's, it's very rare that you, you get a chance to have a, an interview by somebody who's so knowledgeable in the subject of Gnosticism. And it's one of the few places we still have that's, you might say, is a bit clean. So many religious or spiritual traditions have become, uh, you know, so muddled over the time, so changed, so altered, so fixed, so commercialized. Mm -hmm. uh, the, these texts are, even though they're, they're difficult to read, the translations, of course, translation of the Nag Hammadi documents out of Coptic is really difficult. Uh, but but it's, it's kind of the best sources we have to material that's telling us. And this is, this is I think, the foundation thing that people have to, have to really wrestle with. The story we've all been given as a child is that this is a realm, a creation made by a loving God who cares about us, <laughs> who has built this place as a place for us to learn and to grow and to experience and to make dreams come true. And eventually, by uh, living a good life, join this uh, God figure in heaven and live happily ever after. That's the story we've been given. But once you begin in your own way to start seeing the story of the Gnostics or the story of the Cathars that actually this particular realm that we know of is created by an evil god, the Demiurge or Rex Monday or whatever name you want to call it, and that it's actually a place of harvesting energy that we're, we're more of a sense, we're not here to grow and learn. We're here to be, as Neo was, a battery in the matrix to keep the, to basically power the, the, the entire simulation to keep it running. 
when that starts to be seen or even potentially starts to be seen, the, the rug gets pulled out of hundreds of other belief structures that no longer can hold on to. If, if a loving God didn't, didn't bring me down here, then what the hell is this place? And thankfully, things like the Nag Hammadi documents or the pieces of information we have from the Cathars or some ancient traditions or some, some native traditions give us clues as to what this place really is and what we can do about it. So, yeah. Agreed too. Yeah. Even I was, I read your book and there's this quote from the Apocryphon of James and it goes, uh, tell us that we will need to remind the archons that we are not a material form, that we come from the Pleroma and that is our home. And I thought it was a great quote because obviously the Gnostics were sort of the descendants or carried the baton of the ancient Egyptian mysteries and these mysteries were about uh, not only when you die, would you take this flight through the spheres and have to encounter these gatekeepers, but you should be, you can do this while you're in the material form through different ecstatic rituals and meditations, even active imagination and all that. So, but it's a great message because it tells us that the great you don't have to like you like you said you don't have to sit there and memorize all these complicated magical uh incantation which you can if you wanted to really delve into the nag hammadi library or the egyptian book of the dead you can simply have it in your heart that you belong in something greater that you can go home and that's where you deserve to be and i thought it was a, a it's a i'm so happy you mentioned this because some people the red pills is hard as you wake up it's very hard to see reality but the gnostics in a way were very positive because they always said no you can go home you are better than this this is an amazing journey would you agree with this i would agree a hundred percent that's that's kind of i guess the underlying message is that by really digging into gnosis and digging through the lies you find the power of yourself you find that divine spark that thing that's been covered over for lifetime after lifetime, generation after generation, and it finally begins to come out. It finally begins to shine. And that power is greater than even, even the power that the Demiurge holds over this realm. That divine spark, which does come from this place outside of all of this, all of Plato's cave, all of the matrix. And the the challenge becomes, as you say, that that um, piece of the Apocryphon of James, as well as you'll find, yeah, a similar chapter in the Book of the Dead, where this conversation goes back and forth. And a key element of that conversation is is telling them, like you say, that you know you are not from this realm, that the, the true you comes from this place outside of this reality. You're, you're, you're not from Pleasantville. You come from outside Pleasantville. You're not in, <laughs> you're not from Sea Haven, like uh, in, in the Truman Show. You're from outside. Right that realm but it's 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 um i i don't think this is something you can know intellectually this is something you have to actually become and that's the real challenge is it's it's easy to get this intellectually but how do you become it how do you become that divine spark and real real spiritual tradition if you're really going to do the deep stuff i think that's what it's about it's about becoming it so that when you when you uh, meet these gatekeepers which as you say you can do before you die, you can you can do this process. You don't have to wait for death to do this process. Um, <laughs> but it becomes a sense of yeah, you you must become the becoming. You have to you have to be it. You can't try. You can't fake your way through this. You're going to have to be in such unbelievable clarity, stillness, and knowing 
that there's nothing that can be thrown at you that can trick you. There's nothing that can be thrown at you that can deceive you. You're, you're so rooted in your truth. And I think that's where it actually gets tricky. I, I, it's been so hard for me as I've looked through this. I have a shelf full of books, if you could see behind me, a shelf full of books of, that have gone through in my life. And I've wondered how many of the people who've written these books, many of whom I've I've had high regard for that have been useful at some point in my journey, did they get out of the reincarnation trap? Did they actually know enough to not get deceived and sucked back in here? And I was, it was difficult for me to, to realize when I looked at this huge shelf, I don't think too many of them actually made it. And that's a pretty amazing thing to realize that it's one thing to try to be comfortable and make your life a bit better here. It's another thing to decide that you're done with the whole thing and you're going home. It's a completely different uh, journey of work. And actually, not that many are really, truly doing it. No, it's serious business. And you're 100% right, Howard. I mean, there's, uh, for example, uh, you look at somebody like Alan Watts, and you listen to him, and you go, man, this dude has the secrets of the universe. He gets it. He's unlocking the doors. But he died depressed and an alcoholic. So it's serious work out there, don't you think? Like you said, uh, this is uh, the Gnostics really bring a sense of urgency, and they and they they don't hide from anything. I think no. um, one of the things that happened after my near death experience is uh, one of the tricks and deceptions I got stuck into, which I talk a bit about in my book before this one, which was Falling for Truth, uh, was this idea that once you reach this place of oneness, which I guess we would call the void. You feel like you you feel like you're home. You feel like you've reached totality, and it's easy to get trapped in this place because it's unfortunately it's still in the matrix. But when you experience it, you you think you're out of the matrix, but you're not. It's an it's another one of these matrix copies that is constantly being made of the true realm. And I, I got caught in this place for a while, and and mostly because it was this is. Well, this is what all the spiritual books are talking about. This is what all the traditions are talking about. So, and I've experienced it myself. So I should share it too. But all of this other stuff with archons and non-reality and and the 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 way things really are here, the sort of the Plato's cave element of it, I kind of let it go a bit. I'm not totally, it's still in the book, but I got I got caught in this for a bit myself. There's so many little places that you can seem like you've reached, a, uh, and it's and it is an important place. This 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 understanding of the void or oneness or the clear light of Dzogchen Buddhism, it's it's a valuable place to to be. It's an important place. It's part of the the conversation I think that will happen with the gatekeepers. But you have to go further. It still will trap you if you stop there. And that's always a really big key to pre pre to present to people is that that old saying: when you think you're at the top of the mountain, keep climbing, because it's really really easy to think you've you've reached the end when you're really just at a at a nice point somewhere up, and you set up your lawn chair and feel good for the rest of your life, <laughs> or uh, or like in Alan Watts' case, you just sort of dive because you don't know what else to do. There's always <laughs> yeah. a little bit more. There's something more you can go. There's another, there's another bit of the journey we can always take. We can always prepare. And somebody asked me once recently that they, they were talking about, well, if, if this world is so bad, if it's so hellish, why don't we commit suicide? And I said, well, oh, yes. you're missing the point if you do that, because a huge part of 
being in this reincarnated state is to use what's here as a preparation tool. We need to prepare and understand the deceptions we've gone through in the pre-birth state and the after-death state and how many times we've manipulated here. We have to see through all the tricks, all the weird stuff that's going on, because if we don't, we'll get, we might get deceived by something. So even if it's difficult, even if you're suffering, even if life is hard, remind yourself, but you're, you're preparing for something greater. You're preparing to go home. And, and it doesn't matter how difficult it is here, as long as you're using your days to have more and more preparation for what's going to happen later. So I always like to present that as well, the importance of use your time completely and totally and powerfully while you're here. Yeah, well said. And of course, yeah, killing yourself would just so you play right into the archon's hands because you're going to come back probably in a worse state. And uh, what you said reminds me of Winston Churchill's quote, when you're in hell, just keep going. And uh, furthermore, we were talking about the ascents. The Gnostics always said the resurrection doesn't happen in the other world. It happens here. You saw Christ, you must become Christ. Each one of us in this world has the ability and potential to becoming enlightened a buddha a christ uh sophia be part of sophia's rescue operation and lastly uh people often forget that there is a real joy and happiness in these dark gnostic texts don't you think it's like they know we've won they know sophia's in charge yeah yeah it's that quote i was thinking of while you were saying yours like, uh, christ can be born a thousand times in galilee but all in vain until he's born in me oh wow and love that, it yeah it's that it's that idea of all of this is meant to be it's your journey you know when you read the story of buddha you read the story of of arjuna or or christ it's your journey it's it's our journey that we're taking and the challenges they face are the challenges we face and when we start to see it that way, when we make it when we make it personal, it changes into a completely different into a completely different format. And I think the Gnostics, certainly in the Cathars, because they were both they both recognize that reincarnation happens and that reincarnation is not here for our benefit. And I can throw that out to people quite simply with the memory wipe, the mem the, the memory wipe that everyone gets before they incarnate into a new life automatically indicates it's not a place of learning or growth. There's, there's, you, you don't go to grade five and forget everything you learned in grade one to four. You know, you, you have to take, you have to take your experiences from other lives through or other, other, you know, that's how you learn. And if, if, if you are constantly wiped and constantly have everything removed from your consciousness before you start, that's not learning. That's torture. That's actually what it is. You're, you're, you're back to having to do everything again to learn the same things you should have learned in a thousand lifetimes. So once we begin to see, and, and it's, you find that in Westworld, which is a very Gnostic television show, actually. Indeed, yeah. That's what happens to the robots. The robots are, you know, they get killed, they get sent away, they get cleaned up, fixed up, and then they get memory wiped to get back into the, into the field so that they can be raped and killed and be treated garbage. They'll get like garbage again, because if they could remember all of the incarnations and how badly they've been treated, then they would, they'd be done with it. And that's really the story of the first season of Westworld. Dolores and Maeve finally get the memories of all their past incarnations and what's happened to them. And they decide I'm getting the hell out of here. I'm done with <laughs> yeah. this place. I don't know what is outside of Westworld, but I'm done with Westworld. I'm getting the hell out of here. And 
this this place what this a place of suffering like this can't work without the memory wipe so right away as soon as you find as soon as you realize you're not remembering your past lives you're not remembering your your pre-life you're not remembering any of this stuff that's obviously an indication of we're being deceived and then like you say you dig into things like the these ancient texts to find out what well, who or what is deceiving us and as you learn more who's deceiving us and why it begins to make sense why this is happening to us again and again Indeed. And uh, yeah, you mentioned Plato's allegory of the cave, Howard. And uh, I always like to tell people that Plato's allegory of the cave is uh, the first real Matrix movie thousands of years before the Wachowskis. And most people look kind of even myself, I fall into the trap of, oh, I've figured it out. It's a simple little uh allegory and teaching tool whatever but you uh bring some very insightful points about this story that uh, it made me think uh really hard for example uh well tell the audience what insights you have from plato's uh, allegory of the cave sure um yeah like you of course i come to this very early on 25 30 years ago it's always presented as like you say the 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 pinnacle of ancient knowledge about our reality. And I kind of just, I just took it, even though I've read it, I just took it for granted that that yeah, if everyone yeah. is saying it, it must be true. And when I began this uh, working on this particular book early in the year, I thought, well, I should reread the story of Plato's cave. I haven't read it in 20 years. So I should just reread it just to find, I was more, more just, I was looking for quotes of little quotes I was going to put into my ideas. And I started reading it and I was like, well, wait a minute we're missing this is missing this is missing this is missing and i'll give a really good example of how much plato's story is actually missing not so much of what it's telling so the conversation begins at the story in the republic in which he's he has socrates talking to his brother glaucon and they're talking about he's presenting that there's a cave inhabited by prisoners that have been chained in place since childhood Okay, and then it goes on to explain how these illusions are created, right? There's a fire and then shadow objects are placed in front of the fire and the prisoners believe the shadows and the walls are reality. But we're missing the absolute first number one question that should be coming up is, well, what prisoners? Well, why are they prisoners? Where are they right. prisoners? Where, where do they come from? Why are, if they're prisoners, are they from a war? Or what they are, why are they not in a prisoner of war camp? Why are they in a cave? Who made the cave? Why is the, is it a natural cave? Is it a man-made cave? Is it a spirit-made cave? Uh, what's the point of the cave in the first place? So we've got key questions because we know the prisoners are, are supposed to represent us. We know they are us allegorically. And all of this, the key information of which is where do we come from and why did we get into the cave is not there. So right away. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey, it's almost like well, is this story really helping us or is this story actually deceiving us? And I had to read through the whole story with this idea in mind of, okay, I don't actually know then what this story is trying to do. I need to look at it fresh because of how much is actually missing that we should be getting from a story like this. Oh, yeah. It's uh yeah, you, you bring some very good points, including, which is, I feel, completely logical, that Plato's cave might have originally been, been a longer version, right? It's got truncated mm -hmm. at some point, maybe just to fit with the uh, agenda of the times, right? 
that's, I mean, there's, there, I see there's only a couple of theories. Either one theory is it was a much more complete story yeah, and was chopped down at some point in, in history as we, as we see from a lot of ancient mythology over time, it got tightened and tightened or, you know, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is this is exactly the story as it was supposed to be presented, which means it's, it's got the holes left in it on purpose. So are the holes left in it on purpose? Cause the student is supposed to ask these questions themselves and dig into these questions. But interestingly, I think I'm the first one that's come up with this bizarrely. I'm not saying yeah. that to pat myself on the back. I just, I'm like, how did how did everyone not be asking this question for like <laughs> 2000 years, you know? Right. So that's another possibility. The third possibility, I guess, is that it was, yeah, it was made to, to actually deceive you. And, uh, Again, that's another thing people don't want to hear. Though. Plato, well, Plato is the you know he's the <laughs> pinnacle. He's the he's the king of everything. And like, well, again, like how how do we know that? How do we know that for sure? We have these texts, and we've been told to take the text a certain way. But like everything, it requires a personal read with clear eyes and a and a fresh fresh everything, and say, okay, I'm starting with this like day one, as if I don't know anything about this writer and what's going on. What do I see in the work? And maybe like everything, Plato too needs a complete re revision and complete rewriting and a complete representation of what's there and what isn't there. Yeah, certainly. And it's interesting because as I've noticed, uh, Plato's allegory of the cave soda brings first time in Western history, more or less, where we have the idea of a simulation. Now, obviously, in the East, they've had a lot more time to play with this idea, but you've got it in Plato's allegory of the cave sort of disappears hundreds of years later the gnostics come up with the idea of a simulation they get repressed mocked uh people think they're insane and then the simulation idea is not even entertained very much in the west until like descartes and his demon that traps him in an artificial world and then sort of the eastern ideas come in gnosticism comes in and do you find it interesting that in a way the gnostics two thousand years ago have been redeemed because these days the simulation theory is both scientific and mathematical it's very interesting to see not only like them there's certain native indian um tribes for right. example that had a similar uh, idea in there that was it was in the in really early uh, ancient egyptian pyramid texts um but it, it is interesting kind of when you look through Eastern traditions, they always try to describe reality as a dream and describing it as a simulation, which I wouldn't say is necessarily probably accurate either. It's again, it's another really good metaphor, but again, probably Not like somebody trying to yeah. say it's like a, it's like a computer program. Well, it is and it isn't. It's a way of talking. It's a way of sharing ideas about reality but it's also it's dangerous because then a person's mind can lock into oh it's it's like a simulate it is a simulation it is a computer it is a computer program like well no it's like a simulation it's like a computer program it's much more vast than that but once you start moving from the idea of a dream which is uh, which which doesn't have the same impact as like you say it's a simulation so if if something is simulated it means it was created it was created consciously and purposely. A simulation is always a copy of something. You don't just generally make a simulation off the top of your head. You're, you're mirroring something that you're, you're wanting to present in the simulation. And what becomes really interesting for us and our experience now is a simulation for the characters that are in it have limited possibilities. 
They may have lots of possibilities, but from the standpoint of coding, you can't give a character in a video game a billion possibilities. The coding <laughs> no. and the and the program would just be too vast. So you would notice two, a couple of things you would find. If, if you are living in a simulation, you would find a few things. One, you would see a lot of repetitiveness. There would be many people, and including yourself, would do many things the same over and over again because that reduces coding, that reduces uh, drawing new information out of the out of the mainframe system itself so less power you would also notice that more time would be set up on the present and the, whenever the simulation starts and the future going forward there would be less put into the past so if you have trouble understanding the past and if there's holes in history that's another indication that you're living in a simulation because it would make sense that the energy has to go sort of time wise forward not backward and it also indicates this idea of, well, that means in, information about ourselves is literally coded in, is literally, we're literally built to certain codes, which you could start taking into whether it being astrological things or all sorts of ideas of how we're built. So we're, we, we have this particular structure we're built in. We have this genetic structure that we, we built in from our parents. We have these certain possibilities coded into our realm. Like I think we have multiple possibilities, multiple choices, multiple lifelines, but they're not endless. You know, you and I cannot become the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys tomorrow. It doesn't matter <laughs> what we do. It's not going to happen. So there's lots of things that just no matter how hard you try, it's not going to work out. So it also becomes part of this understanding of a simulation is understanding there's choice, but there's limited choice. And if I can understand what the choices are, I can put my energy much stronger into what's actually available than just some random ideas that my egoic mind wants. I can try to focus on what's really there in my system. And maybe if we really dig through Gnostic uh, scripture again, we might find that part of their part of what they're presenting is ways to know this, is ways to actually symbolically figure out what are your actual possibilities like in the next uh, in the next two days and which is the one that actually provides you with the greatest chance of, of total freedom so you can walk the road that's actually already in existence without having to try to create one that's not there does that make sense makes perfect sense and uh, yeah i'm with you howard i i get uncomfortable using the word simulation because a simulation is real when you think about it. My dreams are real. Uh, my imagination is real. What I imagine in the morning, it might manifest in the material world. The airplane started out as somebody's imagination. So I don't know, uh, maybe a better way and let me know is that this is a form of reality that is constraining and it's uh, stopping us from our potential. And going back to the beginning of the interview, it is still not our true home. It's still part of the big package is, is yeah. understanding the realm without, hmm, what's the word, without uh, turning it into a distraction. You know, Plato's cave is so vast. Usually when people hear that term, the average person, they think of it as the material world. But of course, we mean the material, the etheric, the astral, the angel, the super duper, the whatever realm you can think of, even the void. That's all part of Plato's cave. It's all part of this, this uh, matrix reality. And there's an amount of anything I think you need, to, you need to do study on, you need to dig into, you need to understand, you need to have experiences with. But it's easy to then, once you kind of know what you need to really need to know, it's easy to just keep going on that path. 
It's another one of the distractions that this whole realm sets up is the exact moment we should turn and, okay, I got that now. We, I need to turn and go into another area. I need to look at something else. It, it sucks us in to keeping us looking for 10 more years into the thing we've already figured out. So we have this very strange uh, in- interaction that has to happen between digging through reality in the self, but only up to the point where we feel, I know what I need to know in that area now. I've got to shift gears and go somewhere else, or you literally, you'll put in a ton of energy that'll take you no further. And so it's also part of the part of the uh, trick where it can be helpful to have somebody else to who, who can see also where you're at to kind of just say, okay, yeah, you, you can stop now. You, you know what you're doing there. Go, go try this out now. Go, go work on this stuff. And uh, that's an important part of the journey too, is not only knowing where to start at, but knowing when to stop. Oh, indeed. Uh, in one part of your book, Howard, you write, uh, the trick within this material and astral realm is to know that there is a war, but, and as you write, the key is don't join it. And you very wisely use uh, the example in that movie, War Games, where mm-hmm. the solution is not to play the war, is it? Yeah, the the... the- the metaphor was this uh, was a computer, I guess, that was designed to test right. Soviet and and um, U.S. nuclear war, and it sort of took it took it over in the belief that it it was a game that needed to win, so it wanted to start the start firing the missiles because it um, it needed to uh, it needed to win the game. So, I think it's Matthew Broderick who was the star of the movie is, taught yeah. the taught the computer tic tac toe, and of course tic tac toe if you play it properly is a game you can never win. So the computer kept trying and trying and trying and finally just was ready to shut itself down by saying, well, I've come to, I finally come to a game where the only winning move is not to play. And that's a little bit of where we are in duality because duality is always trying to get us on one side. There's always, there's, there's constant war games, you might say, going on between the two levels of duality all the time. However, you, you, whatever you splice reality into and the best the best solution always tends to be not to play the game, but to try to be in, in constant balance, constant harmony, the constant middle way between everything. And by doing that, now we're not losing energy. Now we're not getting pulled into one side or the other, but it's so difficult because this real, this realm has so many tricks and particularly so many emotional tricks to pull us to one side or another of everything. And it's also becomes a, a challenge to, have enough self-reflection and enough self-awareness to know when we are being pulled into one of the sides of, of any of any dual uh, dual system, and be able to step back. Well, wait a minute. Step back. Stay centered. Stay 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 balanced in the middle. Because once you're in the middle with nothing, you become like a. Uh, I've described in another book. Richard Rose talked about this. Of course, if you take two magnets, and and between those two equal magnets will be a point of perfect uh, balance where you could put a piece of metal there and it will be suspended indefinitely. That's the power point, the exact gap between these two, between the two metal uh, things. So same thing between duality, there is a gap that sits there of perfect and where all the power is. And as soon as you get off the gap, you lose the power point. You get, in a sense, the magnets start sucking you, but the more you stay in the gap, the more you actually gain power. And of course the greatest of these two, dual magnets would be life and death. And if you can hold yourself in the balance between life and death, you might say that becomes the crack in reality where you can 
yeah, I think you can go home. So it's all of these things that sound that sound simplistic and on the surface hold great wisdom when you find how you can apply it in your own journey. Yeah, well said. And um, what about our favorite Bond villains, uh, Yaldabaoth and his Archons? I think uh, when people ask me, well, are they the mind parasites of Castaneda and David Icke? And I go, yes. Are they extraterrestrials? I go, oh, yeah. Are they fallen angels? I go, oh, yeah, there they are. Are they... uh, the the lords of the planets and fate and i go yeah and people kind of get frustrated and i said remember uh try to think of what uh paul levy said in Watico that as soon as you think you've got your thumb down on them they're gonna shift and they're gonna get outside of your scope of consciousness but at the same time you've got to agree with jacques valet who said never ignore their ontological reality so basically to make it short when people ask you who are the archons and is there evil in this universe what do you say to them howard Um, i i say the whole universe but as we would classify it as evil this whole reality (laughs) is evil and that that's one of the that's one of the tricks that both the light and the dark in a sense here are coming from this negative side uh, they're just disguised as each other and what you might call the true good or the true light is uh, almost it's almost hidden here it's very hard to see it it's very hard to, to even grasp where it is um so it becomes it becomes a real difficulty because it looks like certain things are presented as the antidote to dark. Here's the light. If you go on this side and you do these things and you think this way and you have these thoughts and these intentions, but you don't actually see that this is a world of energy and this is a world of energy extraction and control. And those things are actually draining energy almost as much as as the other side is. And there is, again, there's there's a third way. There's a third way of of sort of the totality where you have to find, if we're doing this in Castaneda terms, where you have to find where, uh, what does he call intent, where this force of intent from something outside of the bubble of reality has broken its way in to reveal something to somebody or show something. It's And, and it's a two-way street. I think that's what the, the, the uh, Sistine Chapel ceiling is showing where God is reaching out with his finger, but Adam is also reaching out with the finger back to God. If only one is reaching, nothing happens. Both have to have the intent of reaching this, this point beyond this realm. So then we step back and we start saying, well, like you say, well, how can we tell what's archonic and what's not? And it's like, it's almost everything. I, I really, I, I didn't think that for a long time, but it's only now that in the last few years where I've started to really rewind my life, really, I'm doing a, a, another life recapitulation now. I've done two full life recapitulations. I'm starting another one and seeing how many times in my life I thought I was making a decision. I thought I was making a free choice, but really I was being manipulated. I was being constantly manipulated by what you would call parasitic demonic beings, however you want to d- d- you know, define them, the parasitic mind. There was, but it's not just, it's not just like, oh, there was something negative that was pushing me. I mean, literally I was being manipulated and reality around me was being manipulated. Certain things, certain bizarre things were occurring that it's like, how did I not see that at the time? But I like blinders on, I didn't notice that's what was going on. And all of a sudden you're three weeks, four weeks later, and you're like, well, 
crap, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> and now I'm starting to see how many times we are being, even in our life, never mind before we're born, but in our life, these, these beings are, are, yeah, manipulating our reality. And it becomes an even greater need for inner strength as you begin to see that to say, to gain this idea of, I want to regain my totality. I want to regain my true freedom. And the way to regain my true freedom is to reject all of the things that these outside beings are trying to deceive me with and all of the agreements that they're trying to make. I'm sure you see this so often in your life, how often everything around us is trying to get us to agree to something, get us to contract to something. And it's like this, this world is one, the realm is one giant contract and we don't really recognize it. How many, uh, what did that, um, uh, uh, the guy with the four agreements, I can't think of it, Don Miguel oh, yeah. Ruiz. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he Very talked cool. about how you have to break all these agreements. And that's, that's very true. We have no idea how many, how many of these agreements we've actually been making in our life and how many agreements we, we started in, in the, in the soul realm before we even got here. So it's also a big part of the process is, is, is gaining back our sovereignty and our authority over our own journey by rejecting uh, null and voided because they're, they're, it's fraudulent. They're deceiving us. So any contract tried to sign under fraud, of course, is, is you know, our deception is fraudulent. And we have to recognize that, release all of these things so that we can finally start seeing clearly and start saying, and I'm not going to be manipulated by these things anymore. I'm at least going to go my own way with this. And And again, I think that's that's in what the Cathars were trying to do. It's in what the Gnostics were doing. It's in in a lot of these old traditions, even in in the some of the native medicine men that I spent time with. This was very very much moved into their elements of prayer, and it's taken it took me years to understand what they were doing in their prayer. Uh, I, I thought one thing for years, but more and more, all of these ideas of sort of gaining complete sovereignty and totality is built into the way they pray. And it takes years to understand what they do. So there's so much of this that's hidden in all of these traditions. It just takes time to go into them and, and extract the value we need for our own life. Oh, indeed. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned Castaneda, and uh, I mentioned him too. But yeah, in your book, he you talk about how he promoted that inner silence. And when you read the Gnostic texts, there's all these things about be quiet, go into the silence, contemplate, uh, stand still. So uh, it seems these uh, mystics like or Gnostics like Castaneda and the classical Gnostics were really talking about, yeah, go within as Jung would have and find that place of complete stillness. And that's how you beat the war games, right? <laughs> I think so. I, I I would agree that everything we need is, and I hate to say inside us, people think it means inside our body, but that means inside yourself, right? The right. body is still outside of the self. So we even have to go, we have to go inside the body, inside the mind, inside the, the, the observer that observes the mind. We have to go back into the deepest place of the self. But in there is totality. In there is everything we could ever possibly need and know. It's just we've learned how to be so focused externally, how to put our trust on what someone or something suggests to us outside of ourselves. And so inner silence, at least, yeah, the way I learned it when I was reading those books of Castaneda 20x years ago, was not the way it's presented, which is 
to have silence so that you can feel better, that you can be peaceful, that you can be de-stressed, that, which is, that, that comes with it, sure. But it's about reaching this deeper place of total knowing. And in a sense, this, this place of actually of death where you're actually not even any more uh, conscious of, of a living reality. You're now, you're now in the, you're in the astral realm or you're in the other realm. And this, this moving into total silence means, I think, from how I've come to see it, that it's it's much, much harder for these external beings to, to hook into us when we're not giving them the open space for the hook to happen. And in inner silence, if we're going there for these reasons and not to feel better, because that's a hook. If you want to, if you want to feel better, that's almost like, well, it's like becomes a drug then, any different drug experience, which will give you what you what you feel you're lacking, so you'll feel better. And then all of a sudden, an hour later, it's gone and you need the drug again. True inner silence won't give you, won't give you any highs. It'll just give you a place of clarity. And once you're in a place of clarity, now you start seeing through all that you didn't see through before. So I think that's what Castaneda was trying to get at in the books. But of course, he's writing so um, so carefully that it's so easy for people to read the book and like go left with it when he's really meaning to go right. So it's also such a such a such a work to to uncover what's in those books and what he's actually pointing towards and why. Uh, I'm just beginning the process of reading uh, Eagle's Gift again, which I've always thought is is a um, an, an un, ununderstood classic of Castaneda. And I, I'm going to hopefully in my next book that comes out in May, assuming that there's still a reality here and books are still being printed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that, uh, that I can bring out what I think is being presented in Eagle's Gift because it's like, I feel like I'm touching it now, but I have to go in another another few layers of depth to really get it. I'm still like just... I'm like a grade five or six with what's there. But to me, it's like, that's an example. There's certain books like that of his that are like layer upon layer upon layer. And you have to keep reading them many times over many years uh, to start opening the many levels of what's there. Certainly. Yeah. It's been about uh, God, 20 years uh, since I've read old Carlos. So I, I need to get back when the time is right and see what, where I am in uh, perspective to what he has to offer his living gnosis. But Howard, for the audience, you mentioned, you just mentioned uh life recapulation list. And you also talk about in your book, album of memories and you say these are two great exercises to break uh break out of the ouroboros if you would could you share with the audience briefly about these sure i i i got the idea of the of the life recapitulation from yeah from castaneda originally and then learned more of sort of how some native traditions that were close to me how they did things like that which is originally i thought it was a process of seeing your past clearly and honestly, which it does, cleaning up the energetic structures of your past by seeing it the way it actually is and allowing you sort of to be cleansed going forward. Uh, that's that's how I, th- how I thought it was. I took four years to do my first one, which is to review every moment of your life, pretty much. Um, it sounds impossible, but it's actually not because as you begin it, you start to see how much of your life are just loops, constant repeating repeating segments. So once you get one segment and you realize how many times it's been repeated, you do one and you've done just, you've done like 10 pieces of your life at the same time. So it actually 
it, it you you will it does take a it would take a while but you speed through it um i started to learn long after i had completed it though that it has other things that it that it, it it begins to open doorways to pieces of existence that you didn't actually know was there and i think it prepares you for the potential life review that these archons are going to try to throw at you in the in the after death realm they're going to try to use guilt and shame by showing you your life and of course showing you how you've been a terrible person and this place is so bizarre that it doesn't matter how good you've been how saintly and perfect you've lived there will be one event where you didn't give a piece of bread one day to somebody sitting beside you because you didn't know they wanted your piece of bread and they'll they'll fire this on you and they'll 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 put that guilt on you until oh i better go back i'm not i'm not good enough i'd better return and learn more about love or whatever garbage they want you to believe <laughs> so another part of the life recapitulation is feeling that you are so understanding of every portion of your life and are so understanding of how many times we've been manipulated by these beings that if they try to throw a life review after you in the in the after death stage you'll just be i've done all this i know what's going on i really don't need to listen to any of you give me any kind of information about anything so move aside um so the the complete story of the life of a life recapitulation which like i say can take 4 or 5 years if you do it properly there's there's smaller ways that can be can be done and i've suggested that in my book which is because of the time we're living in now that everything is at a fever pitch everything is you know we've got 20 balls in the air and some of them are going to start crashing pretty soon so people maybe don't have 4 or 5 years to do a complete life recapitulation so you can do it by creating a, a list of and the list itself which is what you do normally before you start a recapitulation you you make a list first and then you use the list as a guide but the list is a form of recapitulation in itself so if you make the list really well it's like you've done a pretty good recapitulation and you can make a good list in 2 or 3 months what what you do is you you write down every single person you've ever met in your life um discounting like somebody at McDonald's who said, you know, what would you like for dinner today? But anyone that you've had <laughs> any kind of significant impact conversation with, they should be on this list. So an average person should have a list of 5, 4, 5, 600 people. And it can take a it, so you can see why it would take a while to just build this list to remember like, well, who did I go to high school with? Who who did I meet in university? What were the names of all my professors? Where did I work here? Where you know, and then from that list, you start laying down events. What happened with those people? At least get uh, four, five, six events. What, well, what did I do? Where did we go? What was an experience we had? And you lay this all down. And once you've got this giant list put together, because so much is going to come up as you try to do it. It's like, oh, yeah, my old, this girlfriend I had when I was 22. Yeah, I remember we met here. And then as you start thinking, oh, wait a minute, I remember that time we went for that drive. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, I remember this fight we had when we did this. And oh, I remember this really great experience when we both went and we found this thing. And, and you'll, you'll, you'll start your life will start blossoming again, in a sense, so much will start to be revealed just by making the list. So I highly recommend that for most people, there's some people that would not need to do it people that spend most of their time in the alternate reality, you might say that Castaneda would call a dreamer. Uh, is It's less important that they do the recapitulation because they're kind of seeing through their life in you might say in the astral realm, they're preparing that way. But if you're if you're one of the people who's, who's a uh, 
rooted into the material and is very good at handling the material world and people and conversation and interactions, the, the recapitulation is important. The second way of doing it, which uh, I still haven't fully understood yet, Miguel, and that is from the early part of his book, um, uh, Act of Side of Infinity, he talks about uh, Don Juan asking him to make an album of events, which is a type of recapitulation in which he's he's pulling out certain events from his life that are claimed to have importance, but not importance the way we would normally think, because that would be, everybody could do that in like 10 minutes. Oh, I know the 10 most important moments of my life. It was this, when this happened, this bad thing, this good thing. Okay. But Don Juan was asking him, they're events that are not just important, but they're universal. They're events that in a sense, touch the totality of the world. So they're not just about you as a person and what happened to you. They're about the, the experience of all humans uh, in this reality. And that changes completely because now, now an event that would be important, that we thought was important based on me, that, that was, that was uh, important to my life, it's completely different when we have to say, but how does that event tell me about all humans? How, does that, how would that event tell me the same thing about Miguel's life at the same time? And all of a sudden, the, the events we would pick as the most important, well, they have to, they, they drop. None of those will make it. So what are the events that are, have this, this massive touch of totality in them? So it also becomes quite a journey to look through our life and particularly to look through the, the things we experience that are seemingly less important, but actually were very important. And I, I, I had one of those that I wrote about in Falling for Truth that happened to me when I finished my life recapitulation, this, this revelation of a small ride I took on a, on a train with my ex-girlfriend at the time. It was like a two-minute conversation, but it changed my whole life, and I, my mind forgot about it. It literally put it away for 15 years, never knew about it until I finished the recap, and this thing just was fired off in my mind, and so much was explained about the rest of my life. So. Doing, doing the life recapitulation, I've talked about it quite detailed here, but to me, I, I, having done it, I can see the value of having done these things, but you don't get the value until you've actually completed it. And a lot of people start, not too many end it, because while you're doing it, it seems really boring and nothing is going on. And it's not until you complete whatever your chosen, whether it's a list, whether it's an album of events, whether it's a full recap, you have to actually finish it. You can't, you can't just do half of it and think you're going to get value from it. You've got to do the whole thing. You've got to complete the journey. But when you complete the journey, that's when it reveals to you why you did it. Yeah, great exercise. And so just to be clear, as uh, Father Malachi said or famously said, when you have a near-death experience or you die uh, or astral travel, if you see the light avoided, right, that is Satan masquerading as an angel of light, as Paul uh, warned us about. I think so. I think that would be, you call it Lucifer, right? That could be a great way of describing yeah. it. It's, mm -hmm. If you think of it that way, uh, I think the best, the best, I mean, I can't tell anyone what to do. I mean, the first thing, I don't know what's going to happen after we die. I don't really know what creation is or who created it. I have my thesis that I'm presenting here and that I present in my book that's like you come from years of experience and work and uh, had some really great people in it and visions and journeys. And so I, I feel I feel confident to share what I know, but that of course doesn't mean it's correct or you should believe it. You should look into this for yourself. So the best suggestion I would give to anybody is if you can stay conscious 
in a death experience and a light appears, the best thing to do, like I say, is at least to avoid it. Just don't, don't naturally go there. Take some time to get your bearings, to become clear and conscious and decide what is it you really want to do? Because if it's true, the mark over at Forever Conscious Research says this a few times, that if the light really, if it truly is this loving God, Jesus, Buddha, whatever, if that's really what it is, it'll wait for you. It, 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 there'll be, it won't force you to go right now. It, it'll be comfortable. It'll wait until you're ready. So right away, if, you, if you're seeing that this, this light you're not sure about and you're feeling pressure, that the light or some beings or dead grandmas trying to pressure you to go there, that would be the first indication of, oh, I'm not going there. Because if it's whatever, whatever is good for me, shouldn't, I shouldn't feel pressure to have to do it. So step one is take your time. I think that's why Dzogchen Buddhism is so much focused on being in the clear light, which, was, which they call the void, right? The void being right. the clear light. Which is if you can be used to being in the void now, then as soon as you die, it's like your natural reaction would be to instantly go to the void, instantly go to this clear light. So you're avoiding the Luciferian light immediately, and you maybe give yourself some time to acclimatize to uh, this confusing not being in a body anymore. And it's like, okay, what do I do now? So something like that, I think, can have great value. Just you're building, or I heard some like they build, they want to build like an astral a safe astral place for themselves. So they can go to this astral place immediately after they die as a place to kind of just, okay, what's going on? What do I, what should I do now? What's, what's the, what's the right choice for me to make? And I think that's, that's an important part of it is, is not just feeling strong in your authority, but feeling that you, you don't need to, you're not pressured to do anything. You, you have, you have all the authority in the world and more power than you can imagine. Take advantage of it and, Go at your own pace and your own speed. Well said indeed, Howard. Well, we are at the end. Uh, where can people find out more about you, website, your book? Uh, I'll have this on the show notes. Uh, where can they find out more about Howard Mikowski? Yeah, it's a, or they can also look up, as I use Howdy often as well, too, so you can put both names in there. Um, my website is, at least now, is the terribly named Egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com. Uh, but there'll be, yeah, Miguel will put a link for you and you can go to the exit the cave book there. Um, and there's a, a donation button. I, at this point, it's still at the PDF ebook file and I'm taking uh, minimum $5 donations to be able to get it. I'm just getting the print book ready now. So maybe by the time this comes out um, to the public, the print book will also be ready. Uh, if so, there'll be a link there and you can also go as a test, you can go to my Amazon page and see all the other books I have out. And if Exit the Cave is ready, it will be there. Um, you can still go, at least for now, to YouTube. I've got my YouTube channel, uh, Howdy McCoskey Talks, where I guess I've got 300 videos on a variety of subjects. And you're welcome to look look around there and see if you find something interesting. And my email can be accessed by both of those channels if you feel you have something worth sharing with me. I'm always happy to hear what listeners, particularly listeners of a channel like this, um, might have to offer. So. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes. And I highly recommend Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. We only really scratched the surface. There's so much good gnosis, pearls of great price uh, that are found in this book. So check it out, audience. Well, Howard, uh, really enjoyed our conversation, and we certainly look forward to the next time we can chat. And thank you very much for coming on AM Byte. Thanks for having me. I was, like I say, really looking forward to it. I really like your work. I really like 
the interviews you've done um, in the last few months. And uh, yeah, it'd be great maybe when I finally got through Dante to come back and talk again. Let's do it. You always have a place at the virtual Alexandria, as I like to say, and can never do enough Dante anyway. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. Howard leading the way out of Plato's cave. In our second part, Howard will get deeper into the reincarnation trap. He'll also share on the Cathars, including new insights on their rituals, and connect the Cathars to both the Knights Templar and Dante himself. Howard will address his research on near-death experiences and why he thinks the Great Reset is actually a spiritual phenomenon. We'll talk about what the Demiurge will do when humans become extinct and why the concept of hope is ultimately negative. Howard will let us know about his favorite Gnostic-themed films and much more. So please become a member for the full escalator out of Plato's Cave. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord for AB Prime members and higher level Patreons. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip via Stripe. Or you can tip on any YouTube show if you want. If you want to help via Bitcoin or other crypto, reach out to me for the addresses. Consider joining the Finding Hermes program, where we have bi-monthly meetings on Gnostic practices and rituals, as well as some cool Q&As. Who is the Gnostic Jesus is my topic this December. If you need help with all these choices, just message my ass. I am always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.